You're listening to the DCAU Review, hosted by Cal and Liam. Streaming on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at DCAUReview.com. Now, here's today's episode. Welcome, everybody, to bonus episode number 10 of the DCAU Review. Uh, I am Liam, and with me, as he always is, is my brother and good friend, Cal. And Cal, we're taking a, a little bit of a break. We've uh, Most of our bonus episodes this year have focused on the exciting Batman The Adventures Continues comic books that have been coming out. But considering that those comic books are, in fact, based on these DC Direct Batman The Adventures Continues toy lines, that got us thinking... There's been a lot of great toy lines over the years, especially from the DC Direct brand, also known as DC Collectibles for a while there. And so we thought it would be fun to do, actually, this will be part one of a what we are calling the DC Directrospective. That's right. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you know, as we've said, there have been a lot of, of great figures and and products that have been created by DC Direct slash DC Collectibles. But uh, just a few short weeks ago, we we learned that uh, through the merger of AT&T and uh, I guess what's was Time Warner or whatever that company was that AT&T ended up purchasing, <laughs> that was the parent company of Warner Brothers, that uh, after 22 years and thousands of products produced by the DC Direct brand, that uh, they will be shuttering uh, probably in the not too distant future, and uh, you know that was that was some difficult news not only as collectors because uh, you know we love we love collecting things we are both collectors mm-hmm. at heart collecting and comic book love go hand in hand. Uh, there's a, been a lot of things that have been produced by DC Direct and, and slash DC Collectibles relating specifically to the DCAU, but even the DC brand as a whole, there's been a lot of memorable things. So that was sad. And of course, as we've pointed out several times, you know, the, the fact that there have been many people, the artists behind creating these products, the, the sculptors, mm-hmm. the painters, the, the people that are pitching these ideas for different toy lines and statues and all the other tie-in products that DC Direct is, has produced over the over the last uh, two decades plus. It's uh it's it's a sad time and you know it's an era that we had the fortunate uh, uh, blessing to to live through and and unfortunately with with uh you know DC deciding to sort of maybe uh, license do more licensing I think it's an era that we will look back on and say man that was the golden age of things being produced uh, that uh, we probably won't get a lot of a lot of chance at doing in the future yeah and and a lot of artists and creators as you mentioned a lot of sculptors and artists uh, you know as great as say some of the Mattel DC toy lines have been or now obviously we have McFarland toys line or going back going back in time like Kenner days like there's a lot of great toys produced but Rarely would you get something so specific that was based on specific comic book series or specific comic book artists. Uh, you know, there's there's probably not going to be a lot of uh, room for like a Jason Fabok inspired line of of uh, of toys in the in this new McFarlane wave or a Greg Capullo style line of, of figures. So it, it was that. It was the specialty that they took it with, and we'll certainly get into that through. Uh, we're going to highlight just some of our favorites. We're not going to try to go through every series uh, that the, the, of, uh, of action figures that uh, the DC Direct slash DC Collectibles produce, but 
just some some standouts that we love. But yeah, the, I think we will sorely miss the the sort of spe- the specificity uh, that DC Direct was able to produce, either based on certain storylines or basing entire lines on just certain artists' renditions of these characters. Uh, yeah, that's that's certainly there's going to be a pretty big hole uh, left uh, with DC Direct uh, closing its doors, at least for now. Yeah, and I, mean, I think it's been it's obviously 22 years worth of, of stuff. Looking back, you know that's that means that for me, uh, this this whole thing started when I was 10 and you were six. Uh, <laughs> so that, that is a giant portion of our lives. So much so that you kind of become accustomed to seeing things on a shelf. Like you know, it's not it's not weird to see you know, some of these characters that had never been done in action figure form. When you think about it, obviously, the superpowers line of the 1980s, which is a little bit before both of our time, as far mm-hmm. as collecting, was sort of a, a, an anomaly in that you got uh, you got some of these ancillary characters and some some people that weren't just Batman or Superman. Um, you know, there's a there was I remember I remember at a young age getting my hands on the first superpowers Wonder Woman figure and thinking, man, this is awesome. I, I can't imagine having a Wonder Woman figure mm-hmm. mass produced. Obviously, we've entered an age now and Mattel and the four horsemen that sculpted the the DC uh, DC Universe uh, collectibles line and or DC Universe classics line uh, in that that sort of 2002 to 2007 era and then moving past that when Mattel uh, moved on to the multiverse line we got a lot of characters there that you typically wouldn't see but I think I think they owe a lot of that to DC Direct because DC Direct opened those doors to be able to put these particular characters, like you said, a a mass market company like a Mattel or like McFarlane right now, they may be able to to throw in maybe a, a... uh, a real unique character once every two or three lines, but thinking about it and what their strategy is and what they have to compete with is they're they're going to mass market. They're putting these these action figures on your store shelves, and there's still a significant portion of of those companies and marketing that look at toys and action figures not as collectibles and not to be marketed towards adult collectors but towards children so there's always that portion of those big box stores walmart your targets your you know whatever other companies are are carrying these action figures that are going to be reluctant to put something on the shelf that is as sort of out there as a kilowog or Mm -hmm. you know a mongol or you know, even even characters that have been more sort of in the in the public eye as of late, um, you know, uh, some of the the Wonder Woman villains or or you know Aquaman villains, you know, it's there's going to be a hesitation just because there's not that brand recognizability. But what DC Direct did was say, hey, we're not go- we're we're not marketing these to big box stores. These are going right to the collectors. These are marketed for collectors. And we're gonna we're gonna sell them through the main channel of where collectors go to, and that's through uh, your your local comic book store. Uh, so it was it was mm-hmm. a brilliant to me. Looking back at it, it's a brilliant strategy that had not been necessarily done before, and sort of innovated this line. Now you have 
you know, multiple different companies that do direct to collectors uh, lines or or have have realized that you can kind of go around your your typical big box stores and get get action figures in the hands of collectors. We live in a new age where you know shopping online is the easiest thing. You can mark direct market directly to your your consumer. But mm-hmm. this in 1998 or 1999 when DC Direct first launched, that was what they did with their first with their first line of figures. They did a Golden Age Sandman, <laughs> two different versions <laughs> by the way. The first line was three different characters with both with or all three with with variants. So there was a Golden Age Sandman. Uh, one was a, a regular version. One was a, a Justice Society variant. Then they had a Wonder Woman. Again, you think about it at the time. Nowadays, you can walk into most big box stores and pick yourself up a, a Gal Gadot Wonder Woman figure, but you couldn't get Wonder Woman in a in a six inch scale or a seven inch scale. Wonder Woman right. figures hadn't been produced really to mass market outside of maybe a Total Justice figure. Uh, from Hasbro that was sort of a one-off. You couldn't just walk into a store and get that because the, the mindset of girls don't buy action figures or boys don't buy girl action figures was still the the main right. thought there. So you have a Wonder Woman who had a variant in her armor also, and then you had a Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing who ironically himself had his own toy line based on a movie in the 80s, but really <laughs> had, had been sort of this afterthought of a character. But you have Swamp Thing. So really right off the bat, DC Direct said, hey, listen, we're going to take what the fans want, and that is some of these ancillary characters that garner interest but aren't readily available to go walk into a store and get, and and they just sort of jumped off from there. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, that, that like you pointed out, that's sort of the, the genesis of this line. And obviously their DC Direct uh, didn't just make action figures. They obviously did a lot of statues and other collectibles, busts and maquettes and stuff like that. That's not helmets. really going to – Yeah, helmets. <laughs> helmets, uh, masks. Lantern power batteries, like all of this crazy stuff. And it's it's all incredible and – and maybe maybe uh, in a, a future edition of this, we might look into some of that. But neither of us quite have the love for the statue game as we do for for action figures. So we're uh, for our our little two part uh, bonus episodes that we're doing here on this DC director perspective. We're going to keep it to just some of our favorite action figure lines. But uh, definitely that's something we'd like to get some feedback from you on, whether it is your your favorite uh, action figure lines, just a single toy that you liked, or even some of those other other products. Uh, we'd love to have you tweet us at DCAU Review or leave us a comment on our Instagram, also at DCA Review, because uh, I think uh, this I think this line, as as you mentioned, Cal, is uh, already has and will only continue to sort of generate more good feelings and and nostalgia as time goes on. Yeah, and I mean, I know that there's certainly a portion of people that look at collectibles as an investment, and that's a huge thing right now. If you, you know, if you've been paying attention to the market on collectibles, I don't know if it's because of COVID. I don't know if it's because of just where we are in in the economy or, or what it is, but but prices on things uh, of, of collectibles, especially things that are going are sort of final like at this point there there's going to be a very limited amount of dc direct stuff in the future um being released you know now that they've announced it's being closed there's certain things that are going to end up released in in very small runs so if if you're an investor if you look at this as an investment type thing these these things are always only going to increase in value um 
but hopefully you also get some enjoyment out of it and you're not just you're not just looking to to flip them and, and make mm-hmm. a quick buck but uh you know I, there are things that i think both of us have that are certainly valuable when it comes to the marketplace but i think the enjoyment that you truly as a collector get out of it is the is being able to add add those pieces a, a part of your collection for sure and uh we're gonna get into the meat and potatoes of it like we said we're gonna single out a few of our favorite lines for part one here we're going to focus mostly on uh lines that were inspired by specific artists uh so we are kicking this off cal with a couple of the alex ross inspired lines obviously alex ross one of the most prolific and famous comic book artists i think even if you don't read comic books you may know the name alex ross or you've at least seen his work uh and he had several lines of course one being based off his and mark wade's kingdom come series and then later on the line he had a a massive series from his book which he wrote andrew uh called justice but let's kick it off with the kingdom come line cal uh what are some of the standouts to you from those alex ross kingdom come figures first of all i think just in general when i think if i were if you were to tell me give me the most iconic lines from dc direct period Mm-hmm. I think Alex Ross, between both the Kingdom Come and the Justice League or the Justice series, I think both of those would have to be either they're definitely top five, if not top two, uh, you know, <laughs> most iconic lines that were done. Because when you think about it, like like you mentioned in the intro that we talked about, like not only are these action figures specifically designed after the artwork, the artists were involved in a lot of the, yes. the direction and the design of the 3D. So you're, you're taking a 2D dimension, or, you know, to, a 2D image and making it into 3D. So they relied a lot on the actual artists themselves and, and included them in the, in the production of these 3D images. And I think for me, I love Kingdom Come. It's such a visual, Alex Ross is, is just an icon. I mean, you look at his stuff and it's, bringing that superhero fantasy into real life because of the realism involved in his artwork. So Mm -hmm. then translating that to a seven inch or a six and a half inch tall action figure, 3d form is not, it's, it's a tall task in and of itself and keeping that realism, uh, uh, true to the to the original artwork, and I thought I think that these line these lines just absolutely killed that. They absolutely did an incredible job of translating that iconic imagery from those from both of those books. Again, this is also something that has such a legacy behind it that if done the wrong way, you could make a lot of people upset about the way that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, so we we aren't going to go through a lot of this stuff. DC Direct ended up releasing in box sets or in you know multi packs later on, or mm-hmm. re-releases or reactivation lines. There was there some of these figures were released multiple times, but you start out hot right out of the box with the DC Direct Series One Kingdom Come that was released in 2003. Uh, so you have Green Lantern. And again, this is from the Kingdom Come. So these are all the older versions of these figure or these characters, all these, you know, more 
seasoned, experienced, different looks, very unique looks uh, that were designed by Alex Ross himself. So you have Green Lantern in that iconic sort of green armor. Yes. Uh, you have Hawkman, uh, who, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he's actually part hawk. He's like more yes, hawk than man. <laughs> yes, he, he may in fact have been a cousin of uh, Mr. Wing by this yeah, point. Yeah. <laughs> We couldn't go a full episode without Mr. Wing nod here, but yes, yes, he's he's more more bird than man, I would say. Uh, then of course you have pretty much the star of the entire Kingdom Come Run, and that that being a character that was then translated over into multiple different series after that, and that being Superman, and that's the Superman with this S, uh, new designed S that's sort of just a, a straight bar across his chest. He's got the gray temples, and uh, that would become an iconic character throughout the rest of DC Comics even after this original Kingdom Come run and then you have Wonder Woman who is pretty much true to her true to her original design a little bit different she's wearing wearing sort of a skirt thing as opposed to her her typical bathing suit look but uh, just a what a way to come out of the box Liam yeah you went you went with uh, sort of a great all-star set but you didn't also uh, uh, you know you didn't you didn't you didn't do all the heavy hitters, right? You uh, you save some of the bigger ones for for later versions, and it's interesting, right? Because we have the Green Lantern in his armor, we have this Wild Hawkman, and then obviously, and we'll get to that in a later series, there is a Wonder Woman in her armor. But I like that they went with sort of the more classic-looking Wonder Woman first, because again, I think that builds anticipation because you know maybe later down the line you're going to get that iconic golden winged armor that we are hopefully sometime in the future in the relatively near future going to get to see on the big screen in right. uh, wonder woman 1984 so i think but kicking it off with sort of one of the armored heroes but not immediately doing all of the armored versions right off the bat i think was a was a really smart move and that brought us into series two which is also released in 2003 which did in fact have uh the iconic kingdom come look of batman you also had a Kid Flash released, the Red Robin, which uh, in that comic series, it was Dick Grayson behind the mask. And then, of course, a Shazam. So really, again, you're, you you saved Batman for series two, and then you get you gave someone like Hawkman or uh, maybe a different Wonder Woman that was expected time to shine in that first series. But then coming right behind it with another couple of heavy hitters and certainly in Batman and Shazam. Yeah, and I, I think it appears that you know, be curious to pick the brain sometime of the of the guys that were in charge or the, or the the guys or gals that were in charge of of sort of the layouts of these series. But you know, it's very obvious. It seems to me that first li- first line you have one armored guy and then you got three three standard characters. Series two, you got Batman in his heavy duty armor. Again, it's, there's some sort of budget constraint probably in that. Also, thinking about the way that things are set up, more money's being poured into that Batman because you have different parts on it. The wings wings move. Move and and it's a it's a bulky figure as it is also an iconic look as as you mentioned that uh, just stands out toyetic toyetic is the word that uh, yes. that co- the collector community likes to use that series is straight up very toyetic uh, and then you have Kid Flash who you know is Kid Flash it's it's an, an iconic character sort of in itself um, but you know stands out in this just because it's 
it's Kid Flash. And mm-hmm. then, like you said, Red Robin, this is a, a, a creation that, again, translated past this kingdom come later on in the, the DC universe proper. Of course, Tim Drake eventually takes on that mantle of Red Robin. So another character that was later on incorporated into the, the standard continuity. And then Shazam, I think of all the Shazam figures that DC Direct ever did, I think this is the one. And even, even though the articulation on some of these early figures, you know, a, a lot of collectors care more about articulation than anything because of the way that you want to pose pose guys. So some of these earlier series of direct, DC Direct figures were more akin to a statue because there wasn't as much mobility for, for figures. Arms and legs, you may have four or five points of articulation. Arms and legs be, may be able to move, but you don't have the range of motion or the you know el- double-jointed elbows or double-jointed ankle rockers or, or the things that a lot of nowadays that collectors are, are more... Uh, demanding of but this shazam while he is sort of a more of a statuesque figure he has his hands on his hips it looks directly taken out of one of the most famous panels in the kingdom come series and i think this is the best shazam slash captain marvel figure that that dc direct produced in their entire run yeah that's such an iconic part of that series is obviously there's sort of two groups of the heroes one led by batman one led by superman are sort of pitted against each other and uh the fight between Superman and Captain Marvel slash Shazam and, you know, Captain Marvel has this really like, again, it's very, uh, a weird throwback, but modernized where he's got to, he's got sort of still has the squint and the big goofy smile for a lot of it of, of the series. And, and it really, uh, but obviously done in the hyper real style of, uh, of Alex Ross. And they, they really brought that to the figure as well as, yeah, that 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 fight between Superman and and Shazam slash Captain Marvel in that book is such a such a memorable part of that book to me, and uh, that's and that's yeah I think the the figure the likeness the bringing that that image of uh, you know, Alex Ross's vision of of Shazam to life there is is really well done, and that will bring us to the third series which came out in 2004 which featured a Red Arrow, the villain, the, the main villain of the piece, Magog, finally getting in there. We also have a dead man we have who is sort of part of the sort of narration of it. Uh, and then we have the Flash, who has sort of become this ultimate being of speed. He has the Jay Garrick helmet, but he's sort of a couple of the different incarnations of Flashes sort of combined into one. And then we also, finally, we get the armored Wonder Woman. As you pointed out, Cal, it seems like we had one sort of big armored figure per set here. And yeah, here in the final series of the Kingdom Come run, uh, yeah, they still had some heavy hitters. And uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a pretty good set. I think the Wonder Woman certainly stands out again because that, that golden armor with the wings, as we mentioned, is so iconic. Uh, that's sort of the standout for me. But I always really love that Flash look, too. Yeah, the Flash is sort of, a, like you said, a marrying of a couple different, it looks more like your standard Jay Garrick with the with the Hermes helmet, and uh, it's the figure itself is a translucent red because he was sort of this vibrating, moving-looking character throughout the entire, uh, you know, through the entire actual Kingdom Come book, but it's it's another figure that we would use the word toyetic. I think, I think mm-hmm. Deadman has a good look also because in the comic, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's more of a skeletal look looking 
uh, character yes. than, than your typical man in a in a you know in a circus outfit. Uh, so again, there's certain things that were more visually interesting in the book that then translated to action figure. It's like, man, this is, this is really, looks really cool sitting on a shelf there. But uh, yeah, I would say, I would say obviously the, the obvious ones to go through in each, each of these uh, series, the standout would be the armored figures just because they, they look cool sitting on a shelf, but you can't go wrong with whether it's the Shazam. I think the Superman from series one, I think the Shazam from series two, and then uh, the flash from series three are also visually uh, great standouts as well for your standard figures. Agreed. Yeah, I, I think yeah the armored ones are all are all pretty special and uh, yeah like I said I I have a special uh, affection for that red Robin suit again because it was later used by uh, I think every Robin except Damien has put that suit on at least for a couple issues so it's sort of obviously had a life well after this series but this is the introduction of that suit and it's got the very classic, you know, it has sort of the Burt Ward black and yellow belt on it. So it sort of has, and it sort of has the flares on the tunic that go down under the belt. So it sort of still has that classic like 1940s Robin feel to it, but then it's, you know, him wrapped up in this black cape and, and the, the full cowl. It's a, it's a really, really uh, striking look. So that red Robin always stuck out for me in addition to the ones we've already mentioned. But that will move us on to the Justice line of Alex Ross figures. And, Cal, it's, I don't think we're going to be able to go through every single one of these lines uh, one by one because there are just so many. But uh, starting out with a very strong Series 1, I will name these very quickly. We started it out in this Justice line with a Superman, which had a variant with sort of an angrier look and uh, red eyes indicating his heat vision. Uh, Sinestro, Cheetah, Bizarro, and Flash, and so that this is a very villain-heavy first line. Yeah, and that was that was something that I thought was unique about this line is that you know you had some of these other characters, and and granted they were not in your sort of standard comic book look. There there are these aged versions of these heroes from series one, but from from kingdom come but here right right here right off the bat for the justice series which we said they this is one of those series that ended up getting because i think it was so popular and because there were so many characters used in that actual series there's there's eight different series of dc direct figures that you know and that doesn't count box sets and re-releases and all that stuff as (laughs) we said uh but starting out with a lot of villains and and that's something else that you look at your standard figures in a box store that are put out by Mattel and and one of the major complaints about McFarlane thus far has been that it's been so Batman heavy there have been so many different Batman already in just the first three or four years uh, released in part of that is definitely because your box stores want a recognizable figure on a shelf and that being they they still see that as Batman or Superman typically Batman first Uh, so here you have the option because you're going to these collector stores of getting a cheap a Sinestro and Bizarro in your very first series. It's like that's that's yeah, that's that would generally be unheard of. Even in the Mattel DC Universe classics, those were figures that were released far uh, far later on in the series when they sort of built up and off goodwill with with retailers. So starting off right off the bat with these more lifelike, realistic 3D versions of the Alex Ross paintings, uh, really, really strong. And like you said, definitely unique and something that DC Direct was able to take advantage of. 
Absolutely. And, and this series, as you said, went for so long. And because of the direction the story took, uh, we got to see sort of the regular versions of a lot of these characters, your Supermans, your Batmans, your Green Lanterns. And then later on down the line in the series, starting with uh, Series 6 in 2007, we began to see the armored versions that sort of pop up towards the end of that story. And you have, again, completely different types of armor than what we saw in the Kingdom Come series. But we have an armored Batman, an armored Green Lantern, uh, an armored Aquaman, and eventually an armored Superman. And those are, I think, some of the other standout characters or some of the standout figures of this massive Justice line where, again, you have pretty much every, every character under the sun and tons of villains, but... I think those armored versions, specifically the armored Batman, which sort of has this motif very reminiscent of the and a color scheme very reminiscent of the 1966 uh, Adam West Batmobile. Uh, those armored visions, uh, versions of the heroes are kind of what stick out to me when I think of this Justice line. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. It's hard to imagine this series being complete without those versions of the characters just because they're so iconic. I think there was a missed opportunity to maybe keep this series going. And and again, I don't know. It's hard to know what decisions were made in deciding, hey, eight is going to be the final series for these figures, Uh, just because a lot of the, the heroes ended up using these sort of armored versions of themselves almost perpetuating lines, almost unending based on you could have done, you know, a plastic man in his armor. You could have done, Mm -hmm. you know, a a big gaping hole is the fact that they didn't get to a second armored Wonder Woman who has a, who has a different armored version in graphic novel. Uh, So, you know, there, there was some misses there with that said, um, you know, I, I went out recently and purchased the, the armored Aquaman cause that was the only one that I didn't, didn't have from the set. Um, and, and it doesn't feel incomplete having four, those four sitting on a shelf. I think, I think that they certainly stand out and are visually, we're basically designed to be action figures. You know, I, I don't know if Alex Ross thought when he was writing, Hey, these, these are going to be great action figures one day, but uh, they translated very well into 3d. I think that that Batman may be one of my favorite Batman produced Mm. by, by DC comics of all time. It's just so great. Uh, You know, it has a giant wingspan. Like you said, the coloration invoking the 1966 Batmobile was, was a brilliant design decision from Mr. Ross and then being able to translate it with a, with a shine on it and, and really getting it into that 3d form is really great. I actually also think that the Superman is a little bit underrated. You have the, you have the 19, you know, the, you have the Christopher Reeve, 1979 Superman S in blaze. Full armor. Like, how do you put Superman in a full armor suit and still have him be Superman? Um, there's some steel, I would say, invocations there, and then agreed. You have, you have a lot of well, a lot of in his designs. What Mr. Ross did was include these things from his childhood or things that he remembered in growing up, and invoking not only the '60s Batman but then the Christopher Reeve Superman S into his design. There is was really really strong. So I, I yeah, I'd say that those four armored figures stick out. The rest of the series certainly is great, and having 3D versions of uh, you know Mr. Ross's artwork, but the three, the four armored figures certainly for me are the standouts. Agreed. Yeah, the the only other one I really wanted to touch on here is uh, I was uh, I was gifted I believe for Christmas one year the Brainiac figure from that set, and it's not 
really like a great kids toy, but I appreciate it a lot more now as a, as an adult who still collects these things. It's him. There's a very memorable scene where he's uh, performing some brain surgery and uh, in that graphic novel. And so he's in sort of this white smock and he has, uh, you know, the figure comes with a scalpel and a, a literal human brain. And then they when a, the deco on the figure is very well done. The paint is very well done. Like sort of all of his fingertips are painted red um, as if he's been performing surgery. And he's so it's, it's like this all white outfit with just the sort of classic green uh, Super Friends brainiac looking head. And then, yes, this he's like they sort of recast this sort of this sinister uh, surgeon in this in this iconic scene and then recreating the figure. But that one always had sort of a special place in my heart, I think, especially as I got older and, and learned to appreciate it more. For sure. And that will bring us to our final uh, Alex Ross-inspired line, that being the Justice Society of America line. He did uh, quite a few covers for that series and then started doing a little bit of interiors as well. They actually did a storyline which involved uh, bringing some of the Kingdom Come characters into the proper DC universe and sort of... uh, sort of dealing and sort of how the Justice Society was dealing with that. So we had just two sets of these, which came out in 2009 and 2010, respectively. But we had a first set of Starman, Sandman, a Golden Age Green Lantern, that being Alan Scott, uh, Golden Age Flash, of course, being Jake Garrick. That was Series 1. And then Series 2, we have Cyclone, Our Man, a new version of the Kingdom Come Superman, and, of course, Stargirl. So a good mishmash of some of that that era of jsa was sort of the idea is you still have the old classic like world war ii era heroes but you're also mishmashing it with some of the the newer younger characters that had been introduced in the book at the time and then also melding that with some of the kingdom come stuff it's a it's a really it's it's not as massive obviously as either of the other two lines or maybe not as iconic as far as alex ross's work goes but it's it's still a very memorable uh, memorable series yeah, uh, I think that it does something that we'll probably talk about in the next uh, in our next artist spotlight, and that is that it fills out some of those those characters that maybe didn't get figures in the Justice line. Uh, you still get them in the Alex Ross style, so it allows you to fill out if you have a shelf that you're displaying your your Justice figures on. You can you can fill in some of the holes and and not um, it doesn't look out of place. They're done obviously in the same scale and this it's the same artist style. So it allows you to kind of fill out your roster as uh, as as you complete that, and and it allows you, like you said, to commemorate a fairly memorable run uh, of Justice Society comics. So uh, this series, I, I don't have a strong love or 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 a lot of memories for the these two particular Justice Society series, but I I think it was important to highlight it because it went beyond just the two mini series that Mr. Ross did uh, initially, and then it allows you to do what so many of the other series end up sort of falling short on, and that is filling out a roster of, of figures in the same artist style. Agreed. I think, yeah, like I said, I think it's, it's cool, even though it's probably not his most memorable idea, but like, yeah, it's really cool that we have a, a star girl in an Alex Ross style or an hour man, some of those, some of those guys. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a great set to finish out, even though, like I said, it's, it's based on sort of less iconic fare than some of the other Alex Ross stuff. 
All right, Liam, and that will take us to our next artist spotlight here. Uh, one of our personal favorites growing up, and to me, uh, <laughs> again, I think I'm, we're going to guffaw over all of the artists that we're spotlighting here, but uh, it's it's hard to think of a more influential artist uh, for me uh, than Ed McGinnis, who we'll be discussing next, uh, and different lines that they covered as far as his art is concerned. Very, very different artwork, obviously, different art style than Alex Ross. Alex Ross, obviously, paintings based in realism. Uh, Ed McGinnis is probably the the polar opposite as far as he just designs super massive, over-exaggerated superheroes. Absolutely. Uh, I remember when they were adapting the Superman, Batman, Public Enemies storyline into a, a animated feature. I remember Bruce Tim saying at the time that it's, it's kind of like Ed McGinnis style is kind of like you took the, the Bruce Tim style, the DCAU style, and just injected everyone with a lot of steroids. <laughs> so it's still it has a very cartoony like over the top super heroic quality to it but there's a little bit more definition a little more uh muscle even i think and i think that's something i appreciate is even in his his female characters like they're very well like mu- like they're very muscular there's very like everyone has a very like muscular athletic build to them uh, and especially sort of the top the tip top heroes the supermans and batman of of this lot of these lines uh such such giant uh, gargantuan feats in the comics, just you know, big big giant muscle men, and uh, they, that really is reflected quite almost quite perfectly in this uh, series of DC Direct uh, lines based on Ed McGuinness's artwork. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you know, so the first first ever line that they actually based his artwork off of Liam is one of my favorite comic book runs of all time, and that was the launch of the Superman Batman comics in early 2004, I believe. And then uh, in 2005, they launched the first series of Superman Batman action figures. This was a Superman Batman based on the comic line series. So uh, for that, they there was the first arc, which was Public Enemies, which was based on uh, Mr. McGinnis's artwork. And then they took a break and they believe they did the Michael Turner line, the, the uh, last daughter of Krypton or whatever line that mm-hmm. was. And then, uh, then they moved back into when uh, Ed McGinnis came back to do the the next line, which was the Vengeance line. So we'll jump around a little bit here within that Superman Batman line. But we start out with uh, with the DC Direct Public Enemies line from 2005, and that had a lineup of Batman, Captain Adam, Metallo, Shazam, Superman, and then there was at the time the Toy Fair magazine. There's a Toy Fair magazine exclusive, which is a mail-away Superman as Shazam figure. So, yes, kids, there was at the time something, a print publication, where you went to get all of your your toy news. The Internet was not as readily available as it was today. You went there, (laughs) and not only only was there a print form of this toy news, but they also offered an exclusive action figure through this magazine. So that that makes this line a little bit memorable. Liam, what stands out for you for for Public Enemies Series 1? I think it's mostly just how much they nailed the Ed McGinnis style. Like these figures are pretty darn perfect recreations. Um, we talked about that with Alex Ross about how they had the artists work on these. Obviously you can take, there's a million sort of great panels you can take from, but sort of having the artists come in and work with 
their their teams on creating these 3D images and then having, you know, incredible sculptors work on actually bringing these characters into sort of three-dimensional action figure life. But uh, the standout figure of that of that first series to me is unquestionably just because of how intricate it is, is that Metallo figure. Yeah, he's he's unique from the series. A lot it seems that a lot of the figures, because they're the standard male body type, that a lot of them use a very similar similar stance. And again, this is a this is a five points of articulation line for the majority of it. Uh, just arms and arms arms bend, shoulders move, knees and knees and legs move, head head turns. So I guess that's more like seven or eight points of articulation, but very limited movement here. But that Metallo is in a dynamic stance. The character design is is uh similar to that which we see in the DCAU more of the human John Corbin-esque but he has he has a giant shovel for an arm Liam yes it's really really intric- intricate some of the stuff they do yeah yes sort of this very one arm is sort of this small very skeleton like robot arm he has this giant shovel which of course is very memorable of the scene in the book where he after shooting Superman with a kryptonite bullet, uh, buries him and Batman alive um, using this giant shovel that he can transform his uh, his arm into. He also has a removable, like, human, as you mentioned, John Corbin face, which comes off and reveals sort of the skeleton underneath and even has, like, a removable chest plate and a removable kryptonite heart underneath it. So it's just, it's so intricate and so many little details like the the paint like there's like dirt on his shoes that's sort of du- like there's like a dusting of of dirt and gravel on his on his pants and his boots like it's really really intricately done and yeah maybe they they were able to save some money by using such a similar male body type for most of the figures so it feels like a lot of that extra <laughs> Uh, the extra money they had left over, the ability to work in just completely new parts. And again, it's not like there's a lot of reuse available. And obviously this is a little bit different than what you would make for a, a mass market toy, as, as we've talked about. But yeah, just a, just a completely new thing. His giant shovel arm, his removable face, and his, uh, you know, his removable kryptonite heart. It's such a standout figure of this set to me. Uh, I, w- I would agree. I think that it's nice to finally have the Superman in, in Ed McGinnis style, because to me, I think that that is such a, a throwback to that era, that early 2000s era for me when I think Superman. He did so many iconic covers for for Superman in action comics during during the, his run there. That that's just mm-hmm. something nice to have in 3D form. But I think you're right. I think having something that was just such a unique look to it and such a, a, a standout version of a, of a character that was sort of grossly underused and underproduced at that time. Again, you're not getting a whole lot of... You had a Metallo figure from the animated series, Superman the Animated Series from Hasbro, but you're not getting a lot of Metallo figures made, especially in this very unique sort of Transformer-type style uh, with, a, with a shovel for an arm. So I, I would agree. Um, jumping down now, Liam, as we said, Series 2 was based on Michael Turner's art from the Superman Batman series. So we're going down to uh, Series 3, which is uh, Series 2 of the Public Enemies versions of the figures. Uh, and that included another strong lineup. And again, this storyline has a, a vast array of important DC characters, uh, a lot of the Bat family used in this one. So uh, we get uh, not only... Uh, not only uh, 
Steele, who was uh, John Henry Irons' uh, niece, Natasha Irons at the time. So we have a female Steele. We also get Hawkman, who we can talk about in a second. So a couple issues that I have with Hawkman. But then you have <laughs> absolutely massive armored Lex Luthor and his super uh, super friend style slash superpower style armor. We get future Superman, who is kingdom come superman ironically Mm -hmm. and then rounding out the order we have uh nightwing so another heavy literally heavy as when it comes to the (laughs) the armored lex figure just a massive figure you could kill a man with that (laughs) figure but uh armored lex comes with an alternate head uh what stands out for this series for you definitely i think the two that would stand out for me is that armored lex you mentioned that's that was i mean to the comic the whole sort of comic book world at the time the dc comic book world that was a big deal because at the time uh lex luthor was the president in the in all the books like he in the main continuity he had been elected president and this was sort of the the, the story uh that kicked off these first six issues of the superman batman uh comic book did the story about how basically batman and superman go on this adventure which leads to sort of the downfall of the lex luthor administration and leads to him sort of getting crazier and crazier, and he's injecting himself with weird, like, kryptonite steroids the whole time, and finally he just goes completely off the deep end and uh, puts on, as you mentioned, sort of a, a, an armor very reminiscent of that superpowers Lex Luthor armor, and uh, decides he's going to fight, he's going to fight Superman in the middle of Metropolis, and it's a it's a wild ending to that book, and it's so iconic, and the fact that they went to the Armored Lex, which again, it's a heavy, wild, expense, I'm sure expensive to produce figure, um, was was kind of impressive. But yeah, that's that's definitely the one that, that stands out. And just because we are such big Batman and Batman family character uh, fans, it's it was really cool to see a Nightwing in this set as well. Um, he has it's a pretty memorable issue where sort of the, the Batman and Superman families break into the White House thinking that Batman and Superman have been captured and sort of them interacting with, with Lex Luthor, specifically Nightwing's interactions with uh, Lex in that issue are, are, are very memorable. So it was definitely cool to see uh, those two, but I know you have a bone to pick with this Hawkman, so I'm going to let you talk about that. So as we mentioned, a lot of the figures do share similar similar style or similar uh, molding. I think there's definitely some variations on the molding, but they generally share the same same buck style, which I, I assume led them to create the vast amount of characters that they end up creating for this style. But one swing and a miss comes from this Hawkman land because he is a massive figure. He's like, I would say... Looking at him, he's at least an inch taller than everybody else. Um, mm-hmm. And ironically, in the storyline, it's Batman is the one who dresses up like Hawkman, uh, to, disguises himself as Hawkman. I think Hawkman himself does make an appearance briefly. But regardless, he's clearly should should have been in the same scale as the other figures. And instead, yes. for some reason, he's this massive, gigantic creature. And it just, it unfortunately just stands out. He's about a, a head and a half taller than most of the other figures. So he rests in the back of my Ed McGinnis display. Um, kind of has to, right? Or you wouldn't be able to see most of the other figures. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Also, his wings don't stay in his back, which is another another thing that we can talk about, uh, you know. And, and his arm falls off because that's a lot of problems, unfortunately, that 
the, we're, we'll talk a lot about what we loved about the DC Direct line. With that said, that it certainly is not without its flaws. They had a lot <laughs> of production issues where it seems like if you one out of every three DC Direct figures had an arm that would just snap off. You could pop it back in the socket, but it didn't stay there because there's a, like a little plastic peg that kept it connected to everything. So my Hawkman has the arm fall off problem. So every now <laughs> and then I look into my display and he's he's just one armed. But uh, yeah, that that's my bone to pick with this is that Hawkman completely and totally out of scale and sort of ruins what would have been a pretty good action figure otherwise. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, there's sort of a very, again, a very iconic moment where uh, Batman and Superman are fighting uh, Captain Marvel slash Shazam and Hawkman in the snow. And it appears that Shazam and Hawkman get the better of them. And which leads to, as we already mentioned, there's a Toy Fair exclusive where Superman goes to the White House dressed as Captain Marvel. And as he grabs Luthor by their lapels, Luthor tears the Captain Marvel suit and you see the Superman S underneath it. Meanwhile, uh, Batman is dressed as Hawkman, and he's gone in to free, I believe, Superboy and somebody who are trapped So, in, in this Hawkman outfit. And so you would think, well, based on that, Hawkman would need to be the same size as Batman. Um, yep. But nope. <laughs> but I guess based on how massive they wanted to make the wings, they're like, nope, we need a bigger figure just to support these. And Possibly. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely a you know a, a swing and a miss on this set. But I will say, by the way, I didn't mention it, but that series one Toy Fair exclusive Superman as Shazam is pretty darn cool. Also, um, the fact that they went to the lengths that they did to make a, I mean, it was as simple as popping a, a Superman head on a Shazam. You could have just done a Superman head on a Shazam body, but they went the extra mile on having the suit sort of torn away with the Superman logo underneath. I thought that was really, really, really innovative and a great variant and sort of chase figure to for collectors to search for. It's a it's a good one to look up if if you're collected these and haven't seen it. You can probably find, I'm sure you can find it on eBay. It's not uh, not too expensive, so definitely a cool one to add to the uh, the collection. Agreed. All right, Liam. Moving on to series four of Superman Batman action figures, continuing here with the Ed McGinnis style. So we move on to the next storyline, which was the Vengeance storyline. Uh, so we have some new characters that were introduced into that, and thankfully they made them in the Ed McGinnis classic style. We got Batman Beyond, Batwoman, Bizarro, Batzaro. We have a kryptonite version of Batman, and we get Superwoman. So there's some alternate timelines that are involved in this storyline. There's, you know, I thought that the character selection for this one was a little bit strange overall. Uh, Maybe would have selected a couple different characters, maybe from the original line, as opposed to producing a a Batwoman and a Superwoman figure, Uh, especially since uh, I think they left left out a the Superboy uh, from that set also, if you were going to complete mm-hmm. uh, the trifecta there. But regardless, you have these different different characters from this set that were created. Uh, I think for me, the standout has to be Batman Beyond. Oh, for sure. And I, I know there's some debate because they apparently mistakenly, uh, this Batman Beyond is referred to as Tim in, this ish- in the issue where he debuts. And I think that even made it onto the back of the packaging. That, that Batman Beyond is Tim Drake in this figure. So I've I've often debated on whether or not I need that for my <laughs> ever-growing Tim Drake uh, collection, if I need to count that or not, because apparently it was just an editorial, like a, a mistake that wasn't caught by the editors in time. I think it may have been updated for trades later on. 
Um, but, or at least the name was taken out. I don't know if they changed it to Terry or not, but, um, yeah, so I, I have often tortured myself thinking about whether or not I need to count this Ed McGinnis Batman Beyond for my Tim Drake set. <laughs> because, and again, ironically, later on, there was a comic series, a Batman Beyond comic series, where Tim Drake became Batman in Batman Beyond time, which they never made a figure for. So I'm like, would this count as a Batman Beyond Tim Drake? It, it tortures me. I lay awake at night thinking about it. <laughs> but it is a cool figure. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a standout. It's pretty cool. It was awesome to see, obviously, a character that was so near and dear to us as DCAU fans make it into main, main continuity, even if it isn't or is or might be or undetermined, indetermined whether or not it's uh, whether it is Terry or Tim. But still having the Batman beyond costume and character in Ed McGinnis style is uh, so great. Uh, the rest of this set, I think the only other one that I would mention standing out just because of the iconic nature and and from his original run on some of the Superman comics uh, would be the Bizarro figure. To me, I think Ed McGinnis is Bizarro. I, when I think of Bizarro, I think it's that as the as the standard bearer for all Bizarro designs. Yeah, it's just this big, goofy, smiling guy with his number one uh, necklace around his neck. It's it's so it's so iconic, especially some of those yeah those Superman like Emperor Joker uh, comic covers that that Ed McGinnis did. It's it's really really uh, reminiscent of a lot of those and. Uh, yeah, that's that is I would agree. I think that's the bizarro as far as at least as far as comic book versions go for me. There you go. And then wrapping up, Liam, we're moving on to our final uh, series here, which would be Vengeance Series 2. This is in 2008, Series 5, technically, of the Superman Batman action figure set. So we have Composite Superman. <laughs> we have the mm-hmm. Joker and Mr. Mixie Spitlick and a two pack. We have Power Girl, and then we have Supergirl as well. Uh, let's talk about this set briefly, Liam. Uh, only four figures in this set uh, compared to some of the other ones that had a, a larger roster, so it feels like they're kind of running out of characters to, to cover for this specific <laughs> series here. Um, any, anything stand out for you in this one? Well, to me, the standout is Power Girl because she seems like a big gaping hole in the public enemies line. Yeah, for she's sure. She's a pretty important part of that. So the fact that that feels because I, I know she does appear briefly in this vengeance story because there's a part where like all of the supergirls uh, of, of various times and universes go to save Superman who's been trapped in the in the source wall. But certainly the more you know, she her more memorable role in this Superman Batman comic series was in the Public Enemies storyline where she's initially part of this Lex Luthor sanctioned sort of pseudo justice league um, involving Captain Adam and some of those other people that made it into the lines. Um, And then she sort of eventually has a change of heart and helps Superman and, and Batman sort of save the day near the end. So I think she's the standout just because she was a, a missed one in the, in the, in these first two lines that were based on public enemies but yeah, and I, I do have some affection for that for that Joker and Mixie Spitlick set too, just because it was kind of cool to get. Again, that's more, even though they were in that Vengeance story together, it, it feels like that's more reminiscent of the Emperor Joker storyline from the early 2000s, where Joker steals Mixie Spitlick's powers and sort of warps the world. Um, so that's so it was kind of cool to see those. But it, that last line sort of feels more like we're just rounding it out. We're calling it part of the vengeance line, but it's more just about rounding out some of those sort of obvious holes in a in an Ed McGinnis line. 
Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. That's a perfect way of putting it. And I think it's a good segue as we cover the second line or the the sort of the subsequent line that they did for Ed McGinnis style. So after the initial Batman Superman line, they actually did in 2006 a DC Direct Justice League classified, which I believe was based on a couple of the covers that Ed McGinnis did of the Justice League that sort of filled out the original Justice League roster. So from that, you had a Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Aquaman, Flash, and Martian Manhunter. And then in 2009, I guess based on sort of the popularity of those Batman-Superman lines, so this would have been directly after the Vengeance line, you had subsequent a separate JLA classified Ed McGinnis line that saw re-release of a couple of the other figures with different paint schemes. But this, Liam, allowed them to sort of expand a little bit more on some of those characters, those classic characters, and also incorporate some characters that maybe Mr. McGinnis had either drawn in some of that that JLA classified line, just getting more visually interesting characters in this Ed McGinnis style since you already have those sort of basic bucks that you're kind of sharing all the bodies with. Yeah, it's it's a cool era. There's certainly some some variation there. You you have uh, you know sort of just your classics like your Flashes and Wonder Womans, but you also get a a John Stewart Green Lantern and a Kyle Rayner Green Lantern across these series. You get a uh, you know you get you get a, a couple different versions of Aquaman. You get you get the the classic Lightning Superman blue and red releases. Um, seeing Ed McGuinness's take on on that sort of very unique but visually memorable time in Superman's history is cool. Um, so yeah, there's definitely some standouts, but yeah, it does feel like less about sort of recreating specific iconic moments of his art and sort of what we were talking about towards the end of that. Uh, Alex Ross line where it's more just about well who haven't we made in that style yet yeah they did a great job I think it's I think it's fun. It like I said, it's another it's another case. Just as like we mentioned with with Alex Ross's uh, final the Justice Society line, is that this sort of allows you to fill in some of those holes, some characters that may or may not have been included in that Batman Vengeance line. For instance, you get you get a Cassandra Kane Batgirl who was featured in the in the Public Enemies storyline, but didn't get a mm-hmm. figure. You get uh, you get Wonder Woman. You get the Flash. So you round out some of the Justice League roster, uh, and then you get but then. And seeing, seeing some of these other classic, you know, the 90s classic Kyle Rayner design, which I know you and I have such a fondness for, yes. uh, that, that costume, that character. So seeing him, being able to put him on the same shelf as your other as your other Ed McGinnis figures, I think was really great. It's really fun. And and really, I felt like that's, that's another one of those series that could have gone on a lot further than it did. They ended up doing three different series from 2009 mm-hmm. to 2010 and that JLA classified. Uh, I don't think there's necessarily a gaping hole of a character, maybe one that we'll mention when we get to the end of the episode. But, but uh, overall, it's it's an interesting, certainly an interesting look. I think them using similar bodies for a lot of the characters, or at least a similar similar mold, I think helps it sort of uniform out and and sort of it looks it's a great display. I maybe I'm maybe I'm uh, I'm a little bit uh, a little bit partial to it just because of my love for his style, but I, I think it's it it really displays really well. Agreed, yeah. And I you know Cassandra Kane uh, Batgirl is not a character who got a lot of uh, a lot of toys across any lines or 
you know, her that that Batgirl series, it's, it's funny now because we sort of at a certain point, DC made a decision that we're going to go back to all sort of the classic versions that the the layman, the person that hasn't watched, probably haven't, maybe has never read a comic but sort of knows from the cartoons or a movie or whatever, we're going to use those versions. So they sort of, for a time at least, erased Cassandra Cain from existence. And Mm -hmm. so I think, but I think for people who were in it at the time, I mean, she was, she was Batgirl from uh, when she's introduced in the No Man's Land series in the the late nineties, all the way through to uh, sort of like uh, 2007 or 2008, when they sort of went in a different direction with it. But, yeah, she's she. There aren't a lot of a lot of Cassandra Cain toys out there, so the idea that she made it into this sort of very iconic Ed McGinnis line, I, I love it. I love that she that she she was able to make the cut for that line. So, um, and yeah, as as you've already mentioned, the the Kyle Rayner is also a standout for that line. For sure. And uh, for you collectors that are are checking this episode out, uh, if you're looking to do a full collection of Ed McGinnis figures that save your pennies for that Cassandra, uh, Cassandra Kane figure, as, as Liam mentioned. I think some of it has to do with the fact that there were so many versions of that, so few versions of that character made. But man, uh, getting your hands on any version of a Cassandra Kane figure, whether it's the Mattel version from the DC Superheroes line or the first appearance version or this version, uh, I don't know how many additional versions of Cassandra Kane there are. That might be it. But uh, save your pennies for that because they are not they are not cheap figures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's great advice there. And uh, that will move us on, Cal, to our third sort of artist-inspired series. That being uh, 2004 and 2005's Mike McCone Contemporary Teen Titans toy line, which uh, has sort of a very special place in my heart because I think that that 2003 uh, relaunch of the Teen Titans sort of spinning out of the end of the Young Justice book and the ending of the Adult Titans book that had been around They sort of got it back to basics. It's sort of based a little bit on the team that existed in the Teen Titans cartoon, but it's sort of the modern version. So we uh, it was it was just a brand new start with with Jeff Johns writing and Mike McCone's art. And there's some really, really standout figures in. uh, Unfortunately, we only got two sets of it, so we didn't get to kind of flesh out the entire Titans team that I would have liked to have seen. I I really wish there was a, a cyborg and a starfire. But of course, there was also a line of the new Teen Titans figures based on the art of George Perez uh, going on at, around this time. And I think they didn't want to do two cyborgs and two Starfires and two Beast Boys. So we're kind of left with, you have your modern takes on the, on Wonder Girl, the Cassandra Sandsmark, uh, a Tim Drake Robin and, and the Connor Kent Superboy, as well as a Bart Allen Kid Flash. But while this line is incomplete, we still got some pretty strong figures. To me, the series, as I mentioned, we the first series was that Wonder Girl, Robin, a Blackfire, and a Deathstroke, the Terminator. And then Series 2 in 2005 had that Connor Kent Superboy, Kid Flash, Brother Blood, and uh, Deathstroke's daughter, the Ravager. So it's a smaller set, only eight figures to talk about, but it's iconic to me because the, the comics they're based on meant so much to me. And I really think that Deathstroke and that Robin specifically uh, really stand out to me from this set. 
Yeah, talk about, you know, we mentioned at the, the very tail end of our Ed McGinnis line that about the Cassandra Kane being so collectible. This is another one of those series where I don't know if it was because of the production, the popularity of these characters. Like you said, if they underproduced this because of the other ongoing Teen Titans figure series at the time. But this is a series where a lot of the figures are hard to come by and if you do find them they're not going to be cheap to get liam um especially deathstroke is another one of those characters i don't know what i don't know what it is about him but each and every figure that is produced of this character seems to to multiply in value very quickly it's uh, i guess just because of the the type of character it is the popularity of them and the fact that there haven't been a lot of figures produced, certainly more than Cassandra Kane, certainly more <laughs> than, than probably, definitely not more than Tim Drake though. Uh, but that said, uh, this is a this is a series again based on a specific artist that uh, stands out because it's from that era, from that certain era, uh, or the early 2000s era. And and it's a great roster. You look at it, you get Robin and Superboy anchoring both of your 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 lines there. But you also get uh, Kid Flash, uh, Bart Allen, who was only Kid Flash for a a short period of time. Uh, so that captures that look. So if you're looking to complete your your let's just say you want to get every version of Flash that there's ever been. Well, here's here's a here's a Bart Allen Kid Flash figure. I don't know how many Bart Allen Kid Flashes that they produced. <laughs> at DC Direct, but I can imagine that since he was only Kid Flash for a, a period of time, that it, it's not very many. Uh, and then you have Wonder Girl and, and Blackfire. I think there's only a few Blackfire. There may be one in, in the Justice line, but I, I think I think there's vi- this may be the only other Blackfire figure that they ever produced. Um, and then you have just toyetic characters like Brother Blood and the the ever popular Connor Kent Superboy. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. super, it's just Superboy in a t-shirt and jeans. But for whatever reason, that character is very toyetic, and was very prominent in that that costume in the in the early 2000s. So a very, another very popular character, very popular look, uh, very very popular one for for uh, cosplay artists as well. <laughs> Oh, for sure. It's uh, it's it's pretty easy look to put together, but I do think this line coming in 2005, which was also the year the Infinite Crisis series came out that killed the Connor Kent Superboy, uh, I think that also maybe drove the scarcity of that Superboy figure. We talked about a lot of the figures in this set are hard to come by, and that Superboy is is right up near the top of the list as far as you know finding it for a decent price at least. So, yeah, I think getting getting that sort of one version of it which is somehow as you said despite the simplicity of the look is somehow just as iconic as his leather jacket and sunglasses look from the 90s so yeah that's uh, like i said it's a much smaller entry than most of our other ones on this list but uh definitely one that held a special place in my heart for sure all right, Liam. We are nearing the end. We, I think we got uh, we are we are halfway home actually. Here, our next line that we're going to cover is another one of our heavy hitters here, uh, and that is going to be the Jim Lee inspired Hush line. Which again, Liam, we've we've gotten to talk about uh, a bunch of very important artists, certainly a bunch of iconic DC direct lines, but. Another one of those that stands out as maybe one or one A of the most important, best looking lines of all time. And, and some of it certainly has to do with the graphic novel success and importance at that time. But the Jim Lee Hush line is another just, man, I think every every series that they did just is a home run. 
Oh, agreed. Absolutely. That's that's such an iconic line that, as you mentioned, it's it's a great story the way it's laid out. Um, a, a lot of a lot of the stories that we're talking about were written by by Jeff Loeb, and the way that story is written out uh, is is it's very much a sort of a a journey through the world of Batman. Uh, obviously, at the heart of it is this new villain Hush, who's sort of stalking him. And then you have this underlying plot of this budding sort of this is like the most serious romance he's ever had with Catwoman. Uh, so those are kind of the two main points. But then it's those two stories are sort of told over this long, uh, you know, 12 issue stories over a year of, of the books. But in the midst of it, we get he goes to Metropolis and he fights Superman, who's been brainwashed by Poison Ivy. We have. You know, we we see the Joker, we see Catwoman and Harley Quinn, and he teams up with Nightwing to stop the Riddler. And, of course, the Huntress is a big character in it, and she has this confrontation with the Scarecrow later in the book. And so many iconic characters, and seeing Jim Lee's versions of all those characters in the books, and then in turn seeing them all brought to life by these figures is... Uh, it's 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 as we said. There's there's very few misses, if any, in this set. It's it's a lot of uh, a lot of strong uh, strong contact, a lot of home runs. Yeah. So uh, believe it or not, Liam, I thought I would have thought this was another set that had uh, had maybe five, six, seven series, but they only made three series uh, from Hush, and they pretty much got each character that they could out of it, with the exception of a few. Uh, a few notable exceptions that we'll, we'll probably talk about it a little bit later. Uh, but Series 1 had Batman, Huntress, Hush, Joker, Poison Ivy, and the iconic Toy Fair exclusive, another another Toy Fair magazine exclusive, Jason Todd mail-away figure. Mm-hmm. Those were from uh, came out in 2004. Uh, also in 2004 was Series 2, Catwoman, Harley Quinn, Nightwing, Riddler, Superman, and then also in uh, so starting in 2005 was the final series that had Alfred, Commissioner Gordon, Rachel Ghoul, Scarecrow, and then a variant stealth jumper Batman uh, in his uh, stealth jumping costume. So we have two Batman in this series. We have a Superman that gets gets in there. Um, we get uh, Nightwing is probably I guess. Between Nightwing and the Hush Jason Todd, I think those two are the standouts for me. And I think, despite my love for the Jason Todd figure, since it's sort of just a variant of that Hush, I think that my my standout has to go to that Nightwing figure. Just being, the, it's such and uh, perfectly it, it, as a as a heterosexual male, happy to admit, it's just a beautiful action figure. Like Nightwing, <laughs> Jim Lee it draws a beautiful man in Nightwing. I'm just going to throw that out there. Absolutely. And I think Jim Lee's Nightwing has been recreated. I mean, we, we said we weren't going to talk much about the other DC Direct products, but there is a black and white version of the Jim Lee Nightwing. There's a colored version of it that came out more recently. This sort of classic Jim Lee look of Nightwings has been uh, specifically there's a sort of at the back of the of the graphic novels is this giant poster he made of sort of all the heroes standing together. And there's you know, Nightwing kind of standing while he's twirling one of his uh, one of his sticks. And uh, it's such an iconic image. Yeah, I think there's there's going to be some debate there. And, you know, certainly George Perez in the original like disco era of Nightwing or, or, or some of those uh, at Brubaker, some of the 
great artists that took their turns on, on Nightwing over the years. But man, if, if Jim Lee isn't near the top, and I, I guess that's easy to say with most characters, but especially with, I think, his Nightwing. Yeah, I think that's especially iconic. And then sort of recreating that in figure form here was just, it was just perfect. I also really love his Harley Quinn, the way the, for whatever reason, just the way he drew like the, 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 what do you call those things on her mask? Like like the Harlequin ear, like the yeah, ears, the Harlequin like the ears where her pigtails go, yeah, uh, with the little pom poms on the edge of them. Instead of sort of having them up like most artists, and obviously the classic uh, Bruce Tim design, he sort of had them drooping down and sort of just hanging by her face, and that sort of recreated really uh, uh, effectively in the in the in the uh, in the figure there and the joker it's interesting because the joker plays a very minor role in this story he's really only in yep. one issue um but they create they basically make him in this pose where it appears he has killed bruce wayne's longtime childhood friend tommy elliott um and it's sort of him standing there crouched with the gun with the bang flag coming out of it laughing and on the figure, not only do they sort of recreate, you can recreate that pose, but he also has a, a movable jaw. So you can sort of decide whether you want to pose him just grinning, or if you want to have the mouth open, like he's laughing, like he is in that very memorable uh, panel uh, that, that Joker really stands out to me as well. Yeah. I think that the jaw doesn't quite work in a way that a, like a standard you would see on a, a Mattel figure or a more modern day figure. They didn't quite get the jaw moving action down all the way. Yes. I appreciate the effort though for it and what they were going for. With that said, it is absolutely frustrating that that figure refuses to stand up even with a stand with a peg hole in it <laughs> on my shelf that for whatever reason that figure falls over i think more than any of my other hush figures and he's positioned next to a harley that i got that was used because that harley quinn is a very hard figure to find also uh and i so i got a used harley quinn off of ebay whose joints weren't exactly super tight so he falls over he knocks my harley over it's a huge <laughs> mess so yes i think that that captures the the jim lee joker and i, I appreciate what they're for. It is an first world problems i guess i guess the only other thing Liam, that i'll highlight here is that they did in this line uh, because it, despite the fact that it was only three series long you get both an alfred figure and a commissioner gordon figure in this series yeah, you would expect that those in a Batman line would usually end up in like series five or six if you get to them ever. Um, so yeah, it, it is cool that they they both got they both were able to make it into that third line. Um, there's a yeah, it's a really a really simple like the Rachel Ghoul figure, which is sort of reminiscent of the Neil Adams. He's just a shirtless man with a sword <laughs> look of him there, and I do love that Superman as well because that that fight with the, where he's sort of, he's been brainwashed by poison Ivy and he sort of has like little leaves on his, like caught around his suit. Yep. And, uh, his, and his cape is tattered. He's got a vine on his, on his arm. He's, he's got heat vision eyes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course the stand where you can actually pose him flying, yep. uh, is, is, is quite impressive as well. So yeah, that, that Superman's pretty, uh, pretty great as well. Kind of, and I think there was in a later re-release. Did they do a 
a Jim Lee Superman that didn't have the Poison Ivy stuff at some point? Yes, they they okay. released. It. I think there was a Superman box set that they released a couple different versions of. I I've been able I picked that up somewhere along the way as a as a Lucy on on eBay at some point. But yes, it's it didn't come. I I think it didn't come with a maybe I didn't get the stand with it or something like that. But it also has the ability to fly. But the the cape is not tattered, and he obviously doesn't have the vines, and he has sort of more of a standard look to his to his face than the uh, than the heat vision mind controlled version. Nice, yeah, that's yeah, that's that's such an iconic line. Uh, we will get to it. There is at least one very large omission in yes. uh, in this set, but we will get to that maybe later on in this very episode. But that will move us on, Cal. As you mentioned, only three series for the Hush figures, the Jim Lee-inspired figures. I'm moving on to another one. We've already mentioned his name a couple of times. Uh, Jeff Loeb's other sort of famous artist partner, uh, where he created uh, two of my favorite Batman uh, stories ever told, that being The Long Halloween and Dark Victory. Only one set for each uh, comic book series, but... Both lines based on the same artist, that being Tim Solly. Um, those books have a really special place in my heart just because the atmosphere of those books, it's sort of set in the very early sort of just maybe it's like Batman Year Two. It uses a lot of the same characters that were introduced in the Frank Miller Batman Year One story. And it's sort of this young Batman meeting meeting some of his rogues gallery for the first time and also sort of dealing, again, very very uh, ironically also, again, dealing with sort of this budding uh, attraction to Catwoman, but this time as sort of a young man. Um, first, we have the Long Halloween series, which was actually created in 2006, and that is based on, we have Batman, Catwoman, the Joker, Mad Hatter, and Two-Face, and uh, spoilers for that series, uh, a lot, some of this was taken, I think, later on for the the Dark Knight as well. Um, sort of the story of most of that story is about Batman working with Harvey Dent and Commissioner Gordon to sort of clean up the city. And then eventually, by the end of the story, you know, the tragedy befalls Harvey and he is turned into Two-Face. And there's sort of this grand mystery of this strange holiday killer who is offing various mobsters every time there's a holiday. We don't get we don't get it's not like the other lines where we kind of get every iconic character, but that certainly that Batman, that Catwoman, and uh, I think the Two Face really stick out to me of that first line. Yeah, I I think you this this story is one of those that you have a greater appreciation for. I've 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 read through both uh, Long Halloween and Dark Victory that we'll talk about in just a second. The sequel uh, probably once or twice, but I know that this is such a just such an important line to you and the the artwork. And I remember you. I believe that you had. I, I know you definitely had some of the Dark Victory figures from from this set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember seeing these on on comic book shelves before, and and having not read the read the the series yet in 2006. Going back and looking at them, I've definitely kicked the tires on on purchasing a couple <laughs> of these. And knowing knowing with my obsessive compulsive disorder that I have I would have to get all of them in order to to feel complete. I that's why I've sort of held off at this point. 
uh, because again, finding finding them is not hard. Uh, collecting money to spend on them is is another thing because it's they're not exactly inexpensive at this point. Being you know 14 year old figures, almost 15. <laughs> uh, but the, yeah, I think that they match the artwork, which is such a unique Tim Sawyer's uh, design design is such a unique look and and comparing the figures and ha- we've talked about already putting putting certain art styles into 3D. You can kind of sort of translate certain things sometimes and maybe you get close enough but uh, I think these figures do a great job despite the maybe the lack of ease it's not as easy as a sort of a big barrel chested squared muscular character just because of the uniqueness of his artwork but I think a lot of the especially the two-face I think translates very well from the artwork over to the 3d style so uh, I think these are these are great figures Uh, obviously like I said I think they have more of a place in your heart but with that said I can definitely appreciate the 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 lengths that they went to adapting this such a unique style and we have if you haven't read this story now would probably be a good time to go back and read it we know that matt reeves the director for the upcoming the batman movie that we just got a preview for this past weekend has talked about this being an influence of his and liam i know there was an exciting announcement from the dc uh, animated direct-to-video team over the weekend also involving long halloween that's right. We're getting a full adaptation of the story, and it will be split into two parts, a la the Dark Knight Returns animated films that they did uh, several years ago now, uh, which would lead you to think that it will be a, a pretty direct adaptation of the story, um, which excites me greatly. As I said, this this long Halloween story is it might be, and I go back and forth. It's probably between this and Hush, honestly. Um, as to what my my single favorite Batman story is, um, and this one is is way up there. And as you mentioned, it's not always easy to translate a more abstract artist like Tim Sally. Uh, I know we we sort of uh, talked about this off the air. Uh, like a lot of the Michael Turner was such an iconic artist for DC, um, and did a lot of they did a lot of figures based on his work between. Superman and Batman lines between a identity crisis line and some of the Justice League uh, covers he did. And none of those figures are very good. Like They are ugly. They are ugly, ugly figures. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I think... I think that the general consensus that most collectors have is Michael, like you said, Michael Turner's art style was so unique, so uh, iconic, and so just like you know a Michael Turner drawing when you look at it. But for some reason, that look was so hard to translate into a three-dimensional action figure that looks appetizing. They all looked, they all looked emaciated. They all looked alien. <laughs> they all looked. It was just it. It was not a good result from a lot of the a lot of the figures that they produced. The only other thing, Liam, that I'll mention or that I'll add is because of the influence that we've already heard that this uh, that the Long Halloween is going to play in the the Batman storyline and with the upcoming direct-to-video line, these figures are only going to become more collectible and more valuable. Uh, so if you're if you're looking to start uh, start a collection of these or you maybe finish out one of these, I think that the time time to do so would be sooner rather than later because they're only going to go up in value the more that it's in the public eye. Definitely. And that'll bring us to that Dark Victory series, which also came out in 2006, I believe. And that featured a sort of a, just a repainted Batman. Uh, the first series had him in the gray and blue, and this one brought him to the traditional black and gray. 
but the rest of the series was all new. We had a Commissioner Gordon sort of in SWAT gear, which is a great, great figure. Um, uh, and then also a Scarecrow. And probably my personal favorite here, a very creepy, weird-looking penguin figure uh, t- tied together with the Dark Victory Tim Solly version of Robin as, as part of that Dark Victory story, in addition to being a sequel to the to the long halloween story is also sort of a new take on the origins of robin yeah this is another one of those sets i think to me the standout is the is the civilian figure of commissioner gordon well not civilian the non-superhero slash non-supervillain version of, of commissioner gordon here as you said he's in his police riot gear his his uh you know his tactical vest and uh, wearing his iconic sort of Superman or his, his I- iconic Commissioner Gordon glasses that are <laughs> you can't see through the lenses, so that that's very reminiscent of that art style and uh, just really really great translation from the artwork to a three dimensional action figure. And again, this is a time where we're not getting the, the Commissioner Gordon as an action figure. I think. He's someone else who we can count on one hand the amount of action figures he's ever had, more than likely. And, you know, I think before this, you maybe in the box set that they did, the Hasbro slash Kenner box set from the animated series, there was a, a Commissioner Gordon figure release, but this may have been only his his second second figure overall. So uh, just great opportunity for a collector to get a character who wasn't wasn't readily available and and that is that is iconic in the DC lore so uh, great job on that figure I, I think that stands out the most from from that set agreed yeah that that one certainly and then like I said again the Robin just because I've always sort of gravitated to, especially the Tim Drake Robin but really all Robins and that's that getting a version of that and again sort of t- teamed up in the two pack with this very weird uh, uh, even like weirder and more monstrous than like the the Tim Burton version of the penguin. I I, I like that as a as a two pack there because they're both very small figures and it probably would have been a tough ask even for this smaller collector's line for to ask full price for one of those figures on their own. So to to have that as a two pack was a was a kind of a clever way to get both of these these figures made. So those are definitely the uh, the standouts from that second set for me. There you go. All right, Liam, moving to our final artist spotlight of the day. We talked a lot about classic DC direct lines. We've gone through some of the heavier hitters. Now we're going to move on to our final one of the day, which is going to be uh, one of my personal favorites, which highlights uh, a more modern take. And one of the DC collectibles line, as DC Direct was eventually rebranded as DC Collectibles uh, before rebranding back to DC Direct before... Uh, in the last last year or so, but during that DC Collectibles line, they really went all in on sort of artist-specific designs, as we already mentioned, a, a great Capullo line. They did a whole line uh, of figures. They did artist, I believe they were called uh, designer designer series, basically. So you had specific mm-hmm. de- series that were de- uh, dedicated to specific artists, which again is something else that we are sorely going to miss with not having a DC Direct out there. So uh, one of the ones that became such a marketing juggernaut and I think became a lot a lot bigger than maybe originally expected was the Aunt Lucia bombshells line. And Liam, this came from some original, originally, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were just covers, uh, sort of alternate covers that he had done 
for mm-hmm. different lines, basically pinup drawings based on 1930s and, and 40s uh, pinups that he did of various different characters. Since then, it's become, like I said, a marketing juggernaut for them. They've had their own comic series. They've had uh, different spinoffs of other different collectibles. Uh, it's one of their, their main money makers clearly, because they still market it uh, today. Uh, you know, not not too often you get a, a an offshoot of a series based on just a couple of comic art covers, but uh, this is an example of some beautiful artwork that was translated into 3D. And again, this is something I I feel like there are a couple couple in this line that maybe you're like, ah, that's a, not quite exactly a a hit. But I think some of this line also suffered from budget cuts some things were cut from the original showings and prototypes of these action figures but i still think it's a gorgeous wave so there again there are only two waves of this there were more figures that were planned multiple times that were solicited and then got cut and then resolicited and then cut again um, i think there it started out more more there are more statues from this line uh, but again, we aren't covering statues uh, here on the, these two episodes. So uh, I'm talking, of course, about the Bombshells line from 2017. So there are two waves that were actually released. Wave one has Batwoman, Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy, and Wonder Woman. And then wave two is Batgirl, Hawkgirl, Katana, and Mira. Liam, uh, again, this is something that DC marketed very well and then translated into this more modern era where you have more articulation. Be, you're able to pose these uh, characters in similar poses that they were uh, in their in their comic covers, which leads to great figure photography and more people wanting to, to promote these figures by putting them in different uh, pinup poses from the 1940s. Uh, the artwork is fantastic, and I think the figures translate very well. Agreed. Uh, yeah, both sets are, are really, really cool and well done. Uh, the standouts to me, though, are you sort of have the Wonder Woman is very much like a, a Rosie the Riveter style. Like she has like the the, the bandana in her hair and kind of rep- representing the tiara. Um, and uh, and she, the, I love the accessory she's come with. I think that one really stands out to me. I think I really love that Mira, too. Like I think that the. I think Mira is a character, certainly with her introduction to the movies, that is getting a little bit more play, a little bit more attention from, and hopefully will continue to in, when it comes to toy lines and, and other collectibles going forward. But uh, I love that, like the sort of the very old, very old school sailor, uh, sort of old Navy uniform uh, with with the trident and everything. Like I, I think that Mira really stands out to me as well. But that, and I think, and the, and the Wonder Woman are the two for me. Yeah, those are very strong. I think that a Wonder Woman looks straight off of the page. You know, it's a very good 3D representation, as we've highlighted so many in, in each of the series that we've covered here. Um, I think that the only one that I, I don't necessarily care for, that I don't feel like translated as well, is the Batgirl, which is a shame because the, the Batgirl is uh, sort of a, a marrying of the modern look with the purple and the the gold and the Batgirl of Burnside look mixed mm-hmm. with a with the classic 40s look and that's to me incorporating so much so many of the things from that era uh, translate very well to these figures as you mentioned the, the accessories that come with Wonder Woman was great accessories got sort of cut later on in in some of the uh, later series as they were doing budget cuts I guess so you don't have as many uh, figures but I think the 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 Poison Ivy is great. Obviously, she's styled after Betty Page, who's the icon of pinups in the 1940s. And 
And uh, so she visually looks very similar to that. But of course, she's got this bright green skin that the Poison Ivy character <laughs> has. So uh, the fact that they were able to translate that looks really awesome. Um, but I think to me, the one that is also getting some play nowadays based on her look upcoming in Suicide Squad, the Suicide Squad, is the Harley Quinn figure. Um, the goggles that she incorporates yes. in this, this costume are also, uh, along with the leather jacket, are featured prominently prominently in the in the the suicide squad footage that we just saw over the weekend at uh at dc fandom so some of this artwork being translated into modern day uh movies and uh having influence also i think adds a lot to these action figures so when you're able to see elements like that translated into what movie makers and costume designers are doing in in the live action films or in the live action tv series i think always adds a little bit to that so that figure it comes with alternate hands there's a there's one where she's throwing up a, a peace sign they <laughs> they they pose very well she comes with multiple accessories i would also be remiss not to mention the fact that batwoman who's in a in a like 1940s uh sort of a league of their own yes. uh baseball outfit comes with a baseball and a bat that she can she can hold both of them and mm-hmm. a ball glove and she's wearing this 1940s women's baseball uniform they uh, so, they don't call her batwoman for nothing that's right it's it's so so great and i love like i have the full set being able to to pose these in different uh different poses as opposed to just i'm not really a, a poser as it as it were when it comes to mm-hmm. my figures i sort of have them standing and in sort of a, uh, a statuesque pose a lot of the time, but these figures, you can't help but pose them in, in different different ways uh, because they, they just look so so great in doing so. So huge appreciation for this line. There was a couple figures that I, I was looking forward to. There's a Black Canary that was due out and a, uh, an, a Joker actually that was going to be part of the line that got canceled also. So a little disappointing that this, that this series, uh, I think there was a Bumblebee also that got canceled. So there's a, a few that were kind of left on the on the cutting room floor, as it were, that would have been nice to add to the collection. But overall, it doesn't feel like there's a gaping hole in this set either because you have a, a nice roster of eight that rounds everything out. Yeah, I think so. Like, there's there's a couple. Again, this gets more into the statue game, but there's been so many statues of other characters who didn't get figures, like Supergirl, like Starfire, like Black Canary, as you mentioned, that was close but no cigar on actually getting a figure in this set. Um, so there's still quite a few, uh, and obviously some of the there's a there's a great uh, Supergirl and Superman statue where she's sort of lifting him up on her shoulder, and he's he's in like the very old timey male one piece bathing suit. Um, <laughs> it's it's a great uh, that's my maybe my my statue honorable mention for for any of these series is uh, yeah there's some really great collectibles from from this set, but yeah I think I think as a series as just an action figure series since that's what we're focused on. I think, yeah, especially uh, the, the ones we've sort of focused here. Like I said, I love the look of that Mira, and then I love the the accessories, especially, and, and sort of the overall uh, package of both the, the Wonder Woman and the Batwoman as well. As a DCAU fan, I would be remiss not to mention the Sherry or a Hall Hawk Girl also is pretty yeah. good. Looking. Pretty yeah, cool what they did with her, sort of a Rocketeer-inspired in, look with hers. Mm-hmm, definitely. It's Yeah, it's cool to see, see characters who are probably – a little underutilized or undercared for uh, who were then sort of brought given new life in, in these cartoons that we 
love and review on our regular episodes every Saturday and uh, getting to see them then get to be injected back into some of these alternate lines and some of the main DC comics is uh, it's always quite a bit of fun. So yeah, it's cool that she made the cut for this relatively small line. Fantastic. Well, Liam, I think that will wrap us up for our spotlight here. This is going to be, we're drawing the end of part one to a close here. We will have a part two where we highlight some more of our favorites in this DC direct perspective, but not, we're not going to close this episode out before we add one question. I know we we're going to ask this question of each other. And then of course, we'd love to hear feedback from listeners on their thoughts also on the same, same uh, question. For sure. We are wrapping it up with just a very simple question, which is, what is one figure that you feel is missing from a DC Direct toy line? Specifically, let's keep it to the lines that we talked about today. Uh, What is one figure from one of those lines that you just, you feel like that's the one missing piece? That's the holy grail of this set, this set that we never quite got to for various reasons. Which one uh, is on your list, Cal? Uh, I went back and forth on this. Um, I think I'm going to have to go to the Batman Superman public enemies line and I'm going to have to go with Connor Kent Superboy. And uh, we talked about how that weirdly enough, a guy in t-shirt and jeans is somewhat toyetic uh, that that character was so incredibly popular at that time. We already talked about how the, the teen Titans figure was, uh, was, is extremely rare. It's a very expensive figure and I think just seeing Ed McGinnis' style of Superboy, albeit a t-shirt and jeans, uh, he does play a pretty pivotal role in that that line there. And uh, to me, is is a gaping hole. He's he's probably probably the one that I would add to that list, uh, all things considered. What about you? Yeah, that's a great one, um, and and a good point about he, yeah he's he's only in it for a little bit there, but it's a pretty memorable issue as we talked about. Um, yeah, mine would be similarly, and again, we may have that Mike McCone Teen Titans line to blame for this, uh, unfortunately, as much as I love uh, that version of that character in that set. But as we talked about, that Jim Lee Hush, the Jeff Loeb Jim Lee Hush storyline, they go through pretty much meeting every Bat Family character. Everyone kind of gets a spotlight, or a lot of them do. And then all of, almost all of them got made into figures in those three sets of Hush, except for one, that, of course, being Robin, Tim Drake. Uh, it's a very memorable issue that sort of involves Tim uh, and Catwoman sort of having an argument in the Batcave and him sort of questioning her loyalty. And then we go to maybe, in my opinion, Cal, this might be controversial, the most iconic image of oh, no, I think, I think it definitely is. I, know, I already know what – we haven't even talked about this, and I know what it is. Yes. So as we mentioned, there's sort of this mystery character, Hush, who has been uh, has been uh, dealing with this. In the midst of this, they go to a graveyard where the scarecrow has been. The huntress is sort of losing her mind. Batman tells Robin to stay put where he while he goes to get a closer look. We see someone attack Robin from behind, refer to him as a pretender. And then we get maybe the most iconic image – I'll say it, that Jim Lee has ever drawn. Wow. Which is, we see the hush, this supposed hush, remove his mask. It is Jason Todd with a white streak in his hair, holding a knife, or as we find out later, it's actually, I think, a batarang, to the neck of Tim Drake. And he says, life's just a game, Batman, and this time you lose. 
with the idea. And that's your cliffhanger for that issue. I think especially if you read the single issues of that book, having that be your, your cliffhanger for an entire month of not only Jason Todd returning, but immediately going after the Robin who replaced him, uh, at least appearing to that, that to be the case. Um, that's such an iconic moment. And Tim's sort of, although it's a small role in that issue, is such an important one. And again, for that sort of big reveal that appears to be that Jason Todd is the Hush character, that's such a big and important moment. I think it's to me is, if it's not the most iconic Jim Lee page ever, it's uh, it's top three for me. I think... I think it's okay to have that as as your opinion. I think that's a very it is visually very strong and like it's one of those that I will remember for the rest of my life just because of the impact that it it made even in the advertisement as we already talked about the Toy Fair exclusive Jason Todd hush figure that image was the one that they used in the in the marketing for that him him with his hands around or his his arm sort of wrapped around Tim's neck uh, in sort of a headlock type maneuver, looking directly, he's kind of looking from Batman's perspective at him in this. Yeah, that's 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 one of the the, and I think it's certainly acceptable to say the most iconic image from that series. Yeah, and so for me, that is that is the gaping hole here. Is that obviously we did get that awesome, as we talked about that Toy Fair exclusive, Jason. Which is, I, the only thing I wish, it was pretty much just a, a re-release of the Hush figure with a new head. Which, don't get me wrong, it's a great looking figure, but he still has the two guns. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, if I had a nitpick to make, it would have been cool if maybe one of the hands was holding a, a knife or a battering in it instead. But uh, that's, again, that's nitpicking there. But it's such a great figure. And not having Tim in that line, again... It's probably because this contemporary Mike McCone Teen Titans line was out at the um, and they didn't want to release two of, uh, you know, a similar version of the same character both at once. Uh, but to me, that is the one hole in that hush line for me is that there isn't a Tim Drake, maybe even one that's sort of set in that scene where sort of the rain is there and his hair is all wet and kind of hanging down into, you know, hanging down a little bit, something like that, or with, you know, with the the bandage wrapped around his neck that that Catwoman gives him after Batman is sort of broken off with uh, the alleged Jason Todd to fight and he's still bleeding. Catwoman hands him something to kind of tie up his neck so he doesn't bleed out on the spot. So yeah, that that would have been my 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 one my one request. If I you know we like to say we put it out into the universe, we'll see what happens. Maybe one day uh, it could still happen. But yeah, that to me is the one hole in that hush line. And the one that I would more than any other figure, as I've mentioned, I've uh, slowly but surely uh, either acquired or reacquired pretty much every Tim Drake Robin figure. Um, and the fact that there isn't a Jim Lee uh, Robin to go along with the Jim Lee Batman and Nightwing and Catwoman of that set is uh, is kind of a bummer to me. But yeah, that's that's my white whale, I guess. There you go. Uh, I think that's a fair, fair statement. I think that that set is, I think probably could have squeezed one final set out of that, uh, thinking about it, but uh, maybe we'll cover that on part two of, of this, uh, of this DC direct perspective. So that will wrap up part one. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, if you checked us out here, don't forget, subscribe to us uh, on our regular feed Saturdays, 
10, 9 central. We have our standard episodes that drop. We review an episode every week of a classic Batman or DCAU cartoon. Uh, this this uh, m- upcoming month here, we'll be covering a month of Green Lantern episodes, which we are very excited about. So we'll be in various D- DCAU and other forms of animation. We'll be covering some Green Lantern stuff in honor of his 80th anniversary. Don't forget, you can also check us out at DCAUreview.com for the entire archives of past bonus episodes and new episodes every Saturday. Make sure you follow us on Instagram and Twitter at DCAU Review. Liam, brief preview of part two of this bonus episode, DC Direct Retrospective. What do the good people have in store for us in part two? Yes, so uh, part one, as we said, was very artist-focused, and there will be a little bit of that included in part two, but it's really, this is more about big sort of tentpole event series uh, that went several, several sets, and that includes uh, something like maybe a certain Batman video game series or a certain uh, lantern zombie uh, comic book event. And uh, we have several of those as well, as you might expect. If you've looked at the name of the podcast, we have uh, quite a few DCAU uh, examples to chat about when it comes to these DC Direct slash DC Collectible lines as well, uh, which we will certainly be going to in depth on those as well. So quite a bit to look forward to as we look towards part two. That's right. And until next time, I am Cal. And I'm Liam. And we'll talk to you on the next episode of the DCAU Review. To be continued.